Welcome to another edition of Conversations Different, the New Mexican podcast dedicated to meeting the interesting people of northern New Mexico. I'm Inez Russell Gomez, and with me today is storyteller Joe Hayes. As someone who raised a son in Santa Fe, I am one of thousands privileged to hear Joe spin a story with a kid at our sides. And now it's my privilege to talk to him about how he turned storytelling into an art form. Welcome, Joe. We are thrilled to have you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, this is exciting. So how did a boy from Pennsylvania, raised in Arizona, end up a storyteller in Santa Fe? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. A a very roundabout way. (laughs) But really, I ended up as a storyteller because of my two children. Right, because you want to tell them a bedtime story, right? Yes, and, and I was divorced, and their mom took them to California. So I would learn stories to have stories to tell them when they spent the Christmas vacation with me or summer with me. or I, And then I started recording stories on cassettes. And then when they weren't with me, I realized it was a lot of fun to tell the stories. So I, that, I started looking for more children to tell the stories to. And that, that's how it all got started. It was just sort of a natural evolution. So it's a connection with your own kids that led to a it connection with thousands. A connection with my own kids. And also my inspiration was my dad, who used to tell stories to us when I was a kid. And that really influenced how you tell stories, if what I read is correct, because he spoke... You lived in the border, and there was a lot of Spanish and English. That's right. I lived in a little town in Arizona. Right. right. So that, that's where... That's where I started picking up Spanish. That's where I started appreciating the, 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 the culture, the traditions. So it's just when I started telling stories, it just immediately seemed, well, it only makes sense to learn the old stories from around here, especially the ones that people would tell in Spanish. That's right. And, and I know uh, they lose in translation, so it's kind of nice to be able to tell them in the original language as well. They do, yeah, and I, I, I was aware of that from the very beginning. There are certain things I have to keep the Spanish in for that part of the story because you, you can translate it and people understand what it means, but it doesn't have the flavor. Yeah, no, that is, that is definitely true. So what I love is that you were a teacher and then you're a geologist. That's right. And those are very far apart careers. They are very far apart. That's absolutely true. Because you weren't yeah. a science teacher. You were an English teacher. <laughs> yeah. Until I got into storytelling and finally found my path in life, I was really bouncing around a lot. You know, I, t- I started off as a biology major. Then I, my senior year at the University of Arizona, I switched to English and got an English major. And, and then I got a job with a, an exploration company, mineral exploration, and got into geology. So I went back to school and studied geology. So I, I ended up with quite a varied background. Well, that just means you know a lot. Well, I don't know about that, especially in the sciences. If you studied the sciences in the 1960s, you're, most of what you learned is irrelevant now. Boy, that I remember starting college and plate tectonics was like something they thought might be. And I took the second half exactly, of geology yeah, senior this year. Is bizarre, weird idea that yep. a few people have. That's right. And then in four years later, they're like, we've confirmed it. And I was exactly. like, that was fast. Yeah. Yeah. So you have been all over the world telling stories. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I've been to a, a few countries outside of the United States, okay. maybe six or seven, something like that. 
Well, on your website, it says nine Latin American countries and well, Spain. Well, you know I'm a storyteller. I exaggerate things <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but 36 states in the United States? I have been to all of those states in the United States. It must be interesting, let's say, to be, I don't know if you've been to Maine, but let's, I pick Maine because it's so far away, mm-hmm. uh, to tell a story with Spanish words in the Southwest at a, you know, in a location like that. Well, sometimes I, I used to run into that more than you would run into it now because there are Spanish-speaking citizens in, in every state. I, I told stories in Alaska, and, and the majority of the kids at that school were Mexican kids who, whose parents were working in fisheries. Oh, that's interesting. So it's it's like a common language in lots and lots of places. It has become. You know, you go to Connecticut, and the, the street signs are in English and Spanish. Well, that's more than we do here, unless it's a Spanish <laughs> yeah, that's street. True. That's really true. <laughs> that's funny. That Yeah, when I was little uh, in Las Vegas, you spoke Spanish at home, although not in my house, because my grandma and my mom didn't want me to know what they were talking about. And then at school, you spoke English. Uh-huh. But the teachers there, at least at my school, weren't the kind that hit you for speaking Spanish. They corrected you and made sure you spoke it properly. Uh-huh. They were very, yeah, it was, yeah. it was a really, it was very respected. I, one of the things I read in an interview that you had said is that when you spoke Spanish as a non-Hispanic, it showed little kids how much their language was valued by others. And that, that seemed like such a nice approach. Well, uh, yeah, and I, I would get feedback from the kids. You know, first a sense of surprise and then an appreciation and from the teachers as well, it's it's so great to have someone visit and present at the school who can speak their language. Yeah, I think that's that's so important. When we moved to Texas, I was in school um, with kids named Garcia and Vasquez, and the teachers said Garcia and Vasquez. Sure. And yeah. I kept correcting them, and everyone looked at me like, <laughs> no, go away, you're not supposed to. Yeah. But it was, you know, these are easy names, and they couldn't be bothered to say them correctly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's important. So tell the story of the laundromat, where you're washing your clothes at the Palace Laundromat. I, oh, my goodness. I, that's, I, that's really true. I, I'm amazed that you know about that. I guess I've written it down someplace. <laughs> I, w- I was washing my clothes at the laundromat that was on, the, on Palace Avenue, and I was putting my clothes into the washing machine and then adding some soap, and a girl was putting some clothes into the washing machine next to her, and, then I, and I thought, maybe I had visited her school. I said, did I ever tell you the story about soap? And, and she said, no, I don't, I don't know about that. I said, oh, I go to school and tell stories. I thought maybe I told it to you. So she went and told her mom what I had said to her. And her mother turned out to be Ruth Holmes, who at that time was the community relations officer at the Bank of Santa Fe. And they were looking for some sort of program to sponsor at the Wheelwright Museum. And that's how the whole connection happened. The mom came over and said, you tell stories? And I said, yeah. And, that, and we started talking some more. And she said, well, I think you might be the person I'm looking for. Oh, I love it. Uh, I yeah. love it. So then she came to the It was El Dorado School. She came to the school because I just happened to have a visit there the next week and listened. And then, then she set the whole thing up. And that's how I got for, connected with the Wheelwright Museum initially. I love that. And that connection was nearly 40 years. It was, yeah. Yep. And with that, we'll take a break and we'll be back in a moment with Joe Hayes, Storyteller. This holiday season, let's make a difference together. 
Make a donation to the Santa Fe, New Mexicans Empty Stocking Fund, supporting those in need in northern New Mexico. Your generosity helps with life essentials like rent, utilities, food, and car repairs. Visit sfnm.co slash esfund to contribute. Every donation helps, bringing warmth and relief to families facing challenges. Let's spread kindness and make this season brighter for everyone. Visit sfnm.co slash esfund and make a difference today. We're back with Conversations Different with Joe Hayes, storyteller extraordinaire. Um, Joe, talk about the experience at the wheelwright because you meet the child at the laundromat. Her mother goes to hear you and loves your storytelling. You begin, and from the beginning, instead of like 50 people, you had 100, 150 it, it people. It took off from the very beginning. That Initially, the owners of the Bank of Santa Fe said, if we can average 50 people a night, then we'll consider it a success. And it was three or four times that many. But you know, that was Santa Fe in those days. If somebody was doing something sort of different and, and original, people turned out, we got to check this out. And you know, they, so they, they came to see what it was all about. And storytelling was a very novel thing at that time. Usually at that time, if I would say, I'm a storyteller, people would say, what's that? Now, if you say, I'm a storyteller, the typical response is, oh, so am I. Right. That's a beautiful <laughs> response because it spread. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it did. Now, when you were telling those stories, had you already begun publishing books or did that come later? Actually, the very first book was The Day It Snowed Tortillas. That's right. And that came out in the spring of 1982. And then I started at the wheelwright in the summer of 1982. So it's so almost it was, parallel. It, it was parallel. Uh -huh. And everyone loves tortillas, even if they're snowing all around them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you know, one time the graduates at, at the Santa Fe High scattered tortillas all over the campus. You know, it, that was a senior prank was to make a snow tortillas. Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, my college, uh, Texas Tech, has a reputation for throwing tortillas during football games. Oh, really? Which seems to me a waste of food, and it was a tradition <laughs> that began after I left, but that is that is what they're known for, and I, I just uh, always hope it's bad tortillas at least. Yeah, you know, yeah, stale it, ones. Anyhow. Yes, if they're going to waste them, that, that's a better thing. So how do you make it fresh when you have a regular gig like that you're getting up you're telling not the same stories but similar ones every week well you know i i think i draw that from the listeners mm -hmm. it, it, if i see in the listeners that, that look of interest in their faces then that that that's what i thrive on so i, I i'm i'm motivated by by the people who listen to the story. Uh, I, I feel as though for a storyteller, that's where your focus always has to be, on the listener. And when I try to teach people about telling stories, you've got to pay attention to the people who are listening because they will teach you how to tell the story by the way they respond to the story. So when I, when I see the look of enthusiasm and recognition in the people's faces, oh, I know which story he's going to tell, then, then the energy comes and I'm, I'm excited to tell the story. So it becomes a performance with both of you, in a sense, part of it. Well, that, that's one of the wonderful things about storytelling is because the story really happens in the imaginations of the listeners. Yeah. 
And everybody actually experiences a different story because no two people create the story in the same way in their imagination. Right. The coyote I see isn't the one my son sees. Exactly. Because he always had lots bigger teeth. <laughs> yeah. Very fierce. Very fierce. Now, stories you make up, but also you found folk stories from the area, whether Hispanic or indigenous. How do yeah. you find, how did you get people to tell them and share them with you? Well, most of the stories I learned from doing research. Mm -hmm. because uh, there was a lot of collecting of, of folklore, especially in the 1930s. We, the WPA people collected a lot of stories. Uh, some academics from the universities went on and collected stories. A lot of that material was set down at, at that time. Uh, but, but when the folklorists collect stories that way, they just transcribe the story. They write word for word what the person says to them. Right. So I, I worked a lot with that material that was collected, and I, I say, oh, there's a good idea in that story. I can really work with that and build that into a story that will work for me. Right. Did you ever talk to anybody or meet any, I don't know if they were even still alive, people who told the stories? Like the actual, you know, the old storytellers, like people in a family that might know an old cuento or anything? Not, not really. You, you, you know, almost always... People would say, oh, they used to tell stories when I was young. Oh, can you tell me one of them? Oh, I don't know how to do it. I used to go to the senior citizen centers mm -hmm. and, and, and ask for stories. And I, so often they say, oh, yeah, they used to tell stories all the time. But, oh, I don't know how to do it. And, and I wouldn't get a story. But you know what I would get? Adivinanzas. Okay. They did like to tell those old riddles. Yes. Yeah. Un llano muy llano, una vaca blanca se acostó. Se hizo una vaca pinta y luego se paró. Now you have to translate it for our listeners. On a very flat prairie, on a, en un llano muy llano, una vaca blanca, a white cow, se acostó. Se hizo una vaca pinta. She turned into a spotted cow. Oh, no. Y luego se paró. She got back up again. <laughs> She's a tortilla. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, <laughs> That's good. So how did you come about deciding that you were going to tell in Spanish and English? I just did from the very beginning. When, when I really got very deeply interested in the idea of telling stories, I thought, what are the stories around here that I can look for and, and, and bring out in, into the public again? And, and so immediately I thought, oh, it's, it's the old stories they would tell in Spanish. So from the very start, I, I started telling stories from that, that tradition and, and mixing the languages together in the stories. Is storytelling a lot different from writing a book, or are they similar? And do you have a different approach as you are writing it in words as opposed to speaking them? Most of the stories I write are stories that I tell first. And, and then I write the stories pretty much the way I would tell the story. So I begin telling it and, and seeing how it goes and what, what works in the story and what doesn't work in the story. And then after I'm, I'm comfortable with it, then I tell the story. And I'm always telling the kids, that's one of the main things I tell the kids, is that I listen to myself in my mind and I write. The biggest mistake you make when you're writing is you're not listening to yourself. You talk in sentences. Why don't you write in sentences? Because you're not listening to yourself. Okay. <laughs> so you're sitting and it's like almost like a record player going in your head. Pretty much what I'm doing. I'm telling the story, but then typing it in the computer. 
Oh, I love that. I wish that would work with my editorials. Because <laughs> then probably I would... does more than you realize. Oh, I would like to write faster. <laughs> 25 books is a lot. It's quite a few, but over a, a long time. So, yep. you know, 40 years or so. So not so many. Did you keep teaching when you started storytelling? Or were you able to move into this as a, as a livelihood? When I first started telling stories, I was still teaching. And, but once I started, I turned myself to, to the task of telling stories, I have never had to have a day job. So I've been, I've been so fortunate. It's just I've cruised along. I, not, I didn't make very much money at the beginning, as right. you may well guess. But I, I was able to just devote myself to telling stories. That is a wonderful uh, inspiration for everybody who has a dream job that they don't quite get to. Exactly. We'll take a break right now and be back soon with Joe Hayes. Thanks, Inez. This is Patrick Dorsey, publisher of the Santa Fe New Mexican. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Conversations Different with Inez Russell Gomez. Great local content is only possible with a talented staff dedicated to bringing you the best local content possible. For that staff to do its work, we need your support by subscribing to The Santa Fe New Mexican. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. And if not, there's never been a better time to subscribe. In addition to our home-delivered newspaper that comes with full digital access, we also provide digital-only subscriptions for SantaFeNewMexican.com. We'll also be releasing more online-only audio and video programming moving forward. The Santa Fe New Mexican has been here for nearly 175 years, and we want to continue being your source for local news and information. Visit us at SantaFeNewMexican.com slash subscribe or call us at 505-986-3010. Thank you. It's a new day in New Mexico, and the doors to boundless opportunity are open as tens of thousands of New Mexicans reach higher to pursue a dream, broaden their horizons, and retrain for a better job. With the New Mexico Lottery and Opportunity Scholarships, you could build yourself a better future anywhere in the state. You put in the hard work, we'll help with the costs. For eligibility details, visit ReachHigherNM.com. We are back at Conversations Different. We are talking to Joe Hayes, who is famous locally and around the country for his ability to spin a yarn. <laughs> and I'm wondering how many stories do you think you know? Oh, my gosh. People are always asking me that question. And these days, I have to confess, I know a lot fewer now than I used to know. <laughs> I, they say, uh, have you learned any new stories? I'll say, no, but I've lost a lot of them. Oh, no. Yeah. I can't. How did I start that story? How did I used to begin the story? Usually if I can find the beginning, then, I, then I'll pick up the thread of the story. Okay, that makes sense. So you, if you start, if you know how you're starting, the rest will come. Mm -hmm. That's Typically. That, oh, man. I, that's a, it must keep you sharp, though. They say that as we grow older, we're supposed to use our memory. I'm hoping it'll keep me a bit sharp anyway. I, I, I must confess I worry about that sometimes. In our own lives, most of us spend too much time either watching television or streaming or, you know, we're on Twitter. I know that's my advice. Um, 
But storytelling within a family is a way to help your kids be creative. It's a way to share your family history. What do you tell parents if they ask you, how can I be a storyteller? Well, usually I say you just have to, to find one story and learn it and, and get started telling. You, you, you'll go on forever and ever thinking, I'd like to do that. I think I would like to tell stories. But you got to start with one story. And once you get that first story, then, then you'll, you'll come across another one and it'll grow. And, of course, in family storytelling, personal stories, family stories, you know, funny things that happened in your own childhood, those are the things that children love to hear about. So there's, there's really not that pressure to learn the story. It's more thinking back through your experience and taking the time to tell the story. That's right, because otherwise, you know, our children don't know that we were people before we had them. They might not remember their grandparents without those stories. Yeah, and and children love that. Children love that. And my, that's one thing my dad did was tell us stories. Tell us stories going way. My dad was born in 1896, so he was telling stories that went way back before there were cars driving up and down the streets and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it gave you a glimpse into a completely different world. It certainly did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was about the same age as my grandma, uh-huh. so she she tells the story of Las Vegas when it was actually still bustling a little bit. Um, oh, wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it was the biggest town west of the Mississippi for a while. My mother said the depression came and never left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That ha- and that happened a lot of places, and it's happening to small towns around New Mexico right now. Yes. And when we were little, you could take the Greyhound bus. You could get out of a small town if you needed to. Mm-hmm. And now we have all these choices, and unless you have a car, you're stuck. Yeah. It, it seems so interesting to me, the differences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose every generation has these feelings. Oh, no, all these wonderful things are lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've seen wonderful new things, but what about those great old things? No, that's true. I'm pretty happy with the modern or I guess contemporary world because I I do think that if you had to have a pandemic, being able to do it with Internet and all the books you wanted at your fingertips was probably better than the alternative. But well, I'm sure that's true, although I I do notice that the children have have really have really lacked social interaction. The teachers talk about that all the time. That's true. So you're still doing school visits, aren't you? I am. Yes. And where do people go if they want to book you for a, a visit? You have a website. I'll tell you the truth. That always amazes me how they find me. I mean, I do have a website, so they can, they can Google me. And I guess that's, that's mainly what, what happens. And then they, they get my email address and, and contact me that way. How often do you go out now? Oh, this has been a relatively busy fall. Uh, I did two weeks way down in Roma, Texas, you know, way down by McAllen, Texas. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> far. Yeah. 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 And I actually had uh, seven days over in Hobbs. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a relatively busy fall for me, uh, which surprised me that uh, after the pandemic, who's going to remember Joe Hayes? And then all of a sudden I get an email saying, are you still visiting schools? Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. So it's not just like going in to tell stories. It's like a workshop, working well, with teachers it, it, and it kids. It pretty much is just telling stories yeah, yeah. And, and talking about stories and storytelling and the tradition and all and, and writing. You know, but I, I, I don't think I can dignify it with the name workshop, but, but I, t- I try to put out a lot of ideas and motivations to the kids. Right. Because if kids get interested in words, 
and storytelling, they'll want to read. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you create readers, you will have been doing a service to the world. <laughs> if I create one reader, I think I will have had a successful life. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and on that note, this has been Conversations Different. And stay tuned. We are going to have bonus content from Joe Hayes. have storyteller Joe Hayes, who is going to share the story of a wise little burro with us. Joe? Well, thank you. And here we are in December, so I'm going to tell a Christmas story. A Christmas story that happened right here in New Mexico a long time ago in a tiny village far off in the mountains. That village was so deep in the mountains, hardly anyone ever traveled there. And the people from the village very seldom traveled to the outside world. And when the snow was deep on the ground, the way it was the year this story happened, no one at all came to or went away from that little village. Of course, back in those days, in tiny villages up in the mountains, nobody had a calendar. They would just rely on a wise old timer a woodcutter named Teofilo. He always knew when an important date was coming up. But that year, with all the snow and the cold, the old woodcutter was kept so busy hauling wood for the fireplaces and all the little houses, he didn't notice how quickly the days and the weeks were slipping by. He didn't know how close it was getting to Christmas. Christmas Eve arrived that year, and no one was doing anything to prepare for Christmas. But there was someone in that little village who never forgot about Christmas. It was the old woodcutter's little gray burro. Well, of course, all of the animals in the stable love Christmas, They were all in the stable on the first Christmas morning. But no one loves it more than the donkey. Because it was the donkey who carried Mary on the long journey down to Bethlehem. And even though the poor little burro is overworked and underappreciated all year long, at Christmas time, everyone feels thankful. And the burro feels good in his heart, just as we all do when we know that we're appreciated. So when Christmas Eve arrived and the donkey saw that no preparations were being made for Christmas, he called for a meeting of the animals in the stable. And he told them it looked like the people had lost track of the date. They didn't seem to know the next day was going to be Christmas. Well, of course, the rooster took charge right away. He started crowing, Yo sé que hacer! Yo sé que hacer! I know what to do! And the rooster organized all of the animals for a Christmas play. He assigned a part to each animal And he told them to all come together a little bit before midnight, and then the fun would begin. 
Well, a little before midnight that night, the people were snoring away in their beds, and the rooster flew up to the roof of the little village church and started to crow. The rooster crowed like this, Cristo nació, Cristo nació. And then the donkey started braying, Donde, donde. And the goat bleated, En Belen, En Belen. And then the hen went clucking through the streets saying, Paque, 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 Paque. And then the duck quacked, Pass, Pass. Pass, and the old cow lowed, Amor. The people all sat up in their beds. The husbands and wives looked at each other in amazement. The children came running to their parents to find out what was going on. Everybody was awake, and the animals began again. First, the rooster crowed, Cristo nació. Everyone heard it, and everyone knew what the rooster was saying. Christ is born. Cristo nació. And then the donkey brayed, Donde? Donde? The burro was asking, Where? En donde? And then the goat bleated, En Belen. En Belen. In Bethlehem. And then the hen clucked her question, Paque, paque, paque. What for, she was asking, Para que? And then the duck and the cow gave the answer everybody knows. Peace and love. Pass, pass, y amor. The people all said, Será la noche buena. This must be Christmas Eve, they said. They jumped out of their beds and they went to work, cleaning the houses, cooking and baking, lighting candles and decorating their houses. They lined the road into the little village with luminarias. The next morning, they all went to the stable to thank the animals for reminding about Christmas. They said, Gracias, animalitos. Muchísimas gracias. They probably thought the animals would say, Por nada. You're welcome. But that's not what happened. Instead, the rooster just crowed. And the donkey brayed. The hen clucked. The duck just quank, quank, quank. And the old cow mooed. Nobody understood exactly what had happened. But never again did they forget to prepare for Christmas. The old woodcutter has been gone for many, many years. But of course now, 
the people do have calendars. And on Christmas Eve, they are not sleeping away in their beds. They're at the little village church for the midnight mass. And do you know what you call the midnight mass on Christmas Eve? La Misa del Gallo. The mass of the rooster. But some people say, well, that's not fair. Why should the rooster get all that credit? It was really the donkey who remembered Christmas. But don't worry. The donkey was honored in a very special way. On that Christmas morning, on the donkey's gray back, there were two lines of darker hair, one that ran up and down along his spine and the other that ran across his shoulders. And together, those two lines of dark hair make a cross on the donkey's back. And everyone says, the wise little burro has a cross on his back because he is the one who never forgets when it's Christmas. Thank you. That was wonderful. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to everyone. Yes, Merry Christmas, everybody. 